And we can jump in to our, yeah, last king, our last one in the series on the heart of the kings, Zedekiah. And sadly, this is going to be about rebellion, but not just rebellion, thankfully, also the presence of God. Zedekiah, rebellion, and the presence of God. Second Kings chapter 24, verse 18. So we'll start, 2 Kings 24, verse 18. We'll go through a few verses into chapter 25. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we are so grateful for this morning that you have made and given as a gift. We acknowledge that we are here because, Lord, you sustained us in the night. It is you that gives us our breath, you that causes our hearts to keep beating, Even more, you that redeems our lives from the pit, purchases us with the blood of your Son, reconciles us to yourself, gives to us an eternal inheritance, and calls us to an eternity in your presence. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to value the real real prize and treasure of the gospel that is you, eternal life with you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, eternal life with one another in your presence. And so we pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears and soften our hearts to receive the promises of the gospel and the prize of the gospel and to value our salvation, to live our lives in this world thankful and humble and appreciative of all that we have received in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, there was a recent question, it was some time back that I came across it on the internet. It was a question that was sort of posted to an online discussion board, and somebody had a birthday party coming up, and so he posed this question. He said, I'm having a birthday party, and I want it to be huge, so how do I get lots of people to come and have a great time at my birthday party? That's the question, and the answers were, were numerous. One was, okay, set an incredible location. Offer lots of free alcohol. Have all kinds of great food. Hire a really good DJ. Find a compelling party theme. Sort of build from that theme. Recruit popular friends as co-hosts who will invite their popular friends to publicly commit to coming and then that's going to generate excitement. All these ways to, to get people to come. It's interesting, nobody asked the question, who are you? Do people want to spend time in your presence? Are you a person that they seek? Because they had all kinds of perks suggested. Here's all the things you could offer to get people to come. And oftentimes, that's how we think about the gospel, how we present the gospel, how we consider what the salvation really is about, that it's God just spreading the word around the world about all the great perks of heaven, the locations, the music, the food. And we forget to ask, okay, who is there? And do we care? The true prize of our salvation is God himself. Certainly being spared in eternity in hell is wonderful. Spending eternity in a place without trouble or pain 
is also wonderful, but the greatest treasure of the gospel will always be the presence of God, reconciliation to God, eternal life in the presence of the Father, in the presence of the Son, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, in the presence of his people. There's no greater misery than losing the presence of God. And if we don't understand this, we can't really understand the Christian gospel. And so the fate of Zedekiah, as well as Judah under his rule, is going to make that point really clear, which is going to bring us to our main point for this morning. You'll see it there in your notes. Rebellion against God leads to being cast from the presence of God, which is the worst fate conceivable for a human being. In other words, God is not a mere gatekeeper to do two different destinations. He's not kind of this gatekeeper that's standing at these two doors. One leads to everlasting theme park in the clouds through gate one, and the other one leads to this everlasting pit of burning charcoal through gate two. And if you please God, he lets you through gate one. If you displease him too much, he sends you through gate two, as if he's sort of a heavenly bouncer at a disco club or something. And so we miss. No, no, he, he is the club. He is the party. He is the attraction. He is the theme park. So the defining feature of heavenly glory is the presence of God. The defining torment of hell's misery is the absence of God, or more importantly, the presence of his wrath, but the absence of his pleasure, of his goodness, of his glory. We can't understand the story of Scripture without realizing this. And I don't think we can understand ourselves without grasping this. We certainly can't understand the extreme cost of sin or the extreme prize of the gospel without believing this. So that's what we're going to see in the life and reign of King Zedekiah. We're going to see, firstly, the immense cost of rebellion. That after the death of King Uzziah, we see at the end of 2 Kings 23, the kingdom of Judah is going to decline in every single way. It's going to decline spiritually, militarily, economically, socially. According to 2 Kings 23.30, you see there, Josiah, son of Jehoahaz, became king. Or I'm sorry, his son, Jehoahaz, became king. And he ruled three months before being removed from Pharaoh Necho. Four kings after Josiah. Three sons and one grandson of his. You're going to get three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. That's going to be the reigns. It's going to be just the same story every time. The first is Jehoahaz. He's going to reign three months before being removed by Pharaoh Necho, probably because of some kind of rebellion against Pharaoh Necho. Pharaoh Necho places him in power. He rebels against him. So Pharaoh Necho takes him in chains to Egypt. Leave another son, Jehoiakim, to reign in his place. This, you know, the brother before him, like those who are going to be after him, they're going to be known for rebellion. You'll see that point there, point A. According to verses 36 and 37, Jehoiakim is going to reign wickedly for 11 years, during which time Babylon is going to come into power in the region. And so Jehoiakim is going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who then took Jehoiakim in chains to Babylon, leaving Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, to reign instead. And he's going to reign wickedly for eight months. 
also creating all kinds of problems for Nebuchadnezzar, who then brought him in chains to Babylon as well. And then finally, Nebuchadnezzar is going to make Jehoiachin's uncle, this last remaining son of Josiah, king. His name is Mataniah, and and Nebuchadnezzar is going to change his name from Mataniah to Zedekiah, which is important because the name change is significant. Mataniah means gift of Yahweh or hope of Yahweh. Zedekiah means righteousness of Jehovah or justice of Jehovah. It's fascinating that Nebuchadnezzar would do that. I'm going to change you from hope of Yahweh to justice of Jehovah. No longer is the covenant-keeping name of God Yahweh even in your name, but just the Lord who's now judging you. He goes from gift of God to judgment of God, from being a message of hope from the covenant-keeping God of Judah to a display of God's justice on a rebellious people. Three sons of Josiah, one grandson, all walking the same road. So we see that each of the kings after Josiah, they're going to be known for two things. Number one, doing evil. Do you notice that? All four of them doing evil. And secondly, rebelliousness toward earthly authority. And that's going to be an important connection for all of them. Because we need to remember that the Lord okay, gave Israel into the hands of their enemies as discipline, gave Judah into the hands of their enemies to chasten them, to reprove them, to humble them, to bring them to repentance, to bring their hearts back to God. And so their rebellion against Babylon simply expresses their ongoing rebellion against the Lord. We're meant to see that. That this was never really about just rebelling against Babylonian kings or Egyptian kings. Because they were God's instruments. They were God's tools. I'm bringing them in here to deal with you, to humble you. To bring you to repentance. To restore you to myself. And so to reject them, to rebel against the instrument, is to rebel against the one who wielded it. So now Zedekiah comes to power. These three kings after Josiah before him. And we think, okay, perhaps he'll be different. Maybe he'll set a new tone. Maybe he'll get the point. After all, Jeremiah, the prophet's one of his counselors. So one of his personal counselors is Jeremiah, the prophet. Ezekiel is actually entering into his prophetic ministry at the same time. So you got Jeremiah, you got Ezekiel, all bringing words from the Lord. Surely this could be different. Verse 18. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatol, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. That's not Jeremiah the prophet. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. New verse same song. New stanza, but it's the same story, same rebellion. Nothing seems to change. No humility, no willingness to accept the discipline of the Lord, no willing to yield under the instrument that God has appointed, no crying out in faith toward God, 
No repentance toward God, no hope in God, just more pride, more stubbornness, more excuses, more despising the chastening of the Lord. And he's going to persist in that posture right to the end of his life. He's willing, point B here, to lose everything for bad reasons. It's really what sin is. The willingness to walk in sin without repentance is the willingness to lose everything for bad reasons. Chapter 25, verse 1, And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege of it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. That's a brutal way to go. The last thing you'll see is the slaughter of his sons, and they take his eyes. And it's interesting, the book of Jeremiah actually records the moment when Jeremiah is counseling Zedekiah about what to do when the siege comes. Listen to what Jeremiah says to him. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared and this city shall not be burned with fire and you and your house shall live. You and all your children, if you, Zedekiah, this is Jeremiah 38, 17, if you'll just surrender to the officials of Babylon, if you'll just yield to this, you'll live. The city will be spared. All your family will live. But if you don't, he's going to go on to tell him, the city's going to be burned and you will not escape. You think, what a merciful God. After all this, 11 years of unfaithfulness, 11 years of rebellion, 11 years of stubbornness, 11 years of refusing to repent, 11 years rebelling against King Nebuchadnezzar. And even now the Lord says, you know what? If you'll just take your licks, if you'll just humble yourself and submit to what I'm doing, I'll spare your life. I'll spare the lives of your children. I'll spare this city. He refuses. He'd rather see his sons get slaughtered than humble himself before God. How insane is pride? How blinding is pride? How absurd at the end of the day is pride? How many times have we acted in pride only to look back and go, that was stupid? And it's not near to this scale. He's truly saying, okay, over my dead body and over the dead bodies of my children, Will I yield myself to this God? Will I repent? So we see scoffing at the mercy of God is another theme of his life. Not just his life, but all his officials. It's so hard often to see our rebel hearts. We really can be sneaky. 
we act like we submit to God, but in reality, we just do what we want to do and then find ways to justify it. I think it's worth asking ourselves, how do we notice when in our life our sort of devotion to God is merely lip service? But when push comes to shove, when it's really sacrificial, when it's really hard, when the cost is high, we find a way around it. We find a way of justifying what God calls rebellion. And one way God exposes this in our lives is by assigning us leaders that we don't like and leaders we don't agree with and leaders who don't do things the way we want them to do it. He puts people in authority over us, fallen people, even sometimes people who sin against us, who wrong us, to, and the Lord will do it, to test us, to see, are you willing to submit to me here? Are you willing to submit to me under these circumstances? Are you willing to trust me when you're under people in your society, in your culture, in your nation, in your world that you don't like, or you don't like how they operate, or maybe they don't fear me the way you fear me, they don't honor me the way you honor me, but this is still my instrument that I'm going to use to humble you. I mean, that was the world the disciples the church grew up in, in the book of Acts, in a Roman empire that hated them, in a Roman empire that started putting them to death. Scripture is clear in showing us that Zedekiah was not merely rebelling against Babylon, but against God and his word. Listen to how Second Chronicles 36 is going to tell this same story. This is Second Chronicles 36, verse 12, where it says, He, that is Zedekiah, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. So Jeremiah is counseling him, and he refuses to humble himself under the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. Then King Nebuchadnezzar is making him swear by the Lord that he won't rebel, and he agrees he swears by the Lord that he won't. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The thought being that when all these enemy armies are surrounding them, they're not going to the Lord. They're still sacrificing to false gods in the temple. They're just upping the ante of false worship to try to get out of this trouble. That's what he means by even the priests, all the leaders, they're exceedingly unfaithful. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. He persistently sent prophets, persistently sent, sent people speaking the name of the Lord. And we know that's where that got Jeremiah. Thrown in prison, thrown in a pit of mud. But it's God persistently sending messengers because he had compassion on them. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. 
That's a scary place. When it gets past that point where the wrath of the Lord so raises it, there's just no remedy. There's no way back. I think it's worth thinking about, okay, what's your way of mocking the messengers of God? What's my way of scoffing at his prophets? Because we have them with us today, right? A whole book of his prophets speaking, of his apostles, of the word of the Lord. One way to do it is just don't read it. Right? Then the thought is, well, I can't be accountable for what I didn't hear, right? Another way is just arrange our life in a way that we're just never around counselors that will speak the word of God to us. Just be isolated. Just sort of keep an orbit around the church that never quite enters into the atmosphere. We just kind of satellite the church. We sort of receive some of the signals from time to time. We sort of broadcast stuff. We relay it to other satellites. But we never really enter the atmosphere to be under the gravity of the Word of God, of the people of God. And so sometimes our way of doing this is just to not be near it, to avoid Jeremiah, to avoid Ezekiel, to avoid the Apostle Paul, to avoid his people. Or once we hear it, we just will have ways of going, well, yeah, that's true, but doesn't really apply to me, whatever the reason might be. Look at, here's the childhood upbringing I had. Here's the spouse I'm married to. Here's the kids I have to deal with. Here's the health issues that I face. Here's, we fill in the blank. Whatever we need to do to, to lessen the weight of God's word. So it may not be as extreme as Hezekiah or as Zedekiah or other of Josiah's sons, but, but we have our sneaky ways. And so it's worth even asking the people around you, asking your spouse, asking your friends, you know, what are ways you see me do this? What are ways in which you see me just sort of trim a little fat from the Word of God when it's a bit too much? Or run from it when I just have a suspicion that I don't want to hear this? I don't know about you. I've had those moments where somebody calls, hey, we really need to talk. And I'm like, oh, no. They're going to confront me about something. And it's amazing how full my schedule gets for like the next three weeks. I'm just hoping surely they'll forget. Can't be that big a deal. And they just keep pursuing. They keep calling. And eventually you have to sit down and face the music. So it's worth asking, why do I run from those moments? Why do I refuse those moments? Why don't I like those moments? When, again, those are the moments God uses to to humble us, to transform us, to conform us to the image of his son. So here we have Zedekiah. Amazingly, even at the end of his life, it's still not too late to repent. It's still not too late to humble himself before the Lord. I mean, how compassionate is God, how merciful that he keeps providing these ways out. That's why if you've ever been in a place in your life where you've really lit yourself on fire, I mean, you've really burned it to the ground. I know I've been there. I can look back and see, yeah, there was about 50 gateways I just passed through. This was not fast. <laughs> this was not out of nowhere. It was not all of a sudden, this is where I was at. When the Lord gave me I see, I could look back and go, yeah, there, 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 there. 
It's like Samson on his way to go marry a Philistine girl. His parents, his parents are like, really? No, you don't want to do that. He's like, no, I really do. She looks good to me. And on his way to get married, God sends a lion in his path. Like, there's a, there's a clear warning. Well, then Samson kills the lion. Well, now he has a dead carcass in his hands. What's a Nazarite supposed to do at that point? Turn around, head back. He doesn't. He just keeps going. And so you see God use his parents to try to get to him. He uses just sovereign circumstances and events to try to get to him. Then eventually, he's going to lose his eyes as well. Zedekiah paid lip service to God, expressed through his lip service to Jeremiah, lip service to Nebuchadnezzar, but his heart was far away, far from obedience to the Lord. So all the ingredients of devotion to God were there. All the ingredients of sanctification were around him. All the ingredients needed to trust his Savior, just no devotion to God. When we think about it, before God intervened in our lives, we were all this way, right? That's why we should look back on our salvation and see the miracle that it was. Like it wasn't, oh, I finally figured it out. It was no, God finally woke us up. He finally turned the lights on. He prevailed over our stubborn hearts and just softened us and help to see the ugliness of our sins, see the beauty of Christ, see the need for atonement, see what was provided at the cross, see the meaning of the resurrection, and just turn from our sin and trust in him. That was just all the Lord gathering us in. As we're just running, he's just grabbing us. And nope, you're going to be right there. So we can look back now and see, yeah, this is what he overcame in us. This is what he didn't leave us to. Unable to comprehend the true costs. We see that in Zedekiah's life, that point D. The slaughter of his sons is the last thing he will see with his physical eyes. And then that's what will be replaying in his mind when he can't see with physical eyes. He finishes his days in captivity. And by the way, then his real misery begins. This is what's also tragic. Like, we think that's a hard way to end your life. Well, it only got worse. We can ask, what misery? Well, an eternity cast away from the presence of God. That's the immense cost of rebellion. Yes, cast out of Judah, cast out of his throne. His family killed. All those awful consequences of that rebellion. But the true cost is what he's feeling right now. Eternity. Outside the presence of God. This happened in the nation of Israel in 2 Kings 17, verse 18, because of their rebellion and idolatry. Listen to what Scripture says. The Lord was very angry with Israel, with the northern kingdom, and removed them from his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So all Judah had to do is remember, hey, this happened to our brothers and sisters in the north. We finally got to the point where because of their rebellion, their idolatry, God just removed them from his sight. And now it happens to Judah. Which we knew was coming based upon verses 3 and 4 of chapter 24. When Nebuchadnezzar first started invading Judah in the days of Jehoiakim, 
Listen to what it says. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Nebuchadnezzar comes, begins to besiege the city, preparing to exile them, and we are reminded, surely this was the command of the Lord. He's guiding all this because he determined to remove them from his sight because of all the sins of Manasseh, all the sins of the nation, all the blood of children that they shed in worship of their false gods. And now speaking of Zedekiah in verse 19, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done, for because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. We're meant to see that is the immense cost of rebellion. And this physical casting out of his presence is just symbolic of the spiritual casting out. And so the immense weight of judgment is found in all those words, from his sight, from his sight, from his presence. And it's worth thinking about what that means. I think many of us often don't think about what that means. Certainly we live in a world that doesn't care about the words from his sight, from his sight, from his presence. We could say it this way, it is cast from the presence of light, of all spiritual light, eventually physical light. Imagine it, only darkness all the time. That was one of the judgments on Egypt, is he brought darkness, and it said a darkness that could be felt. You ever been in that kind of darkness? You could close your eyes and still feel it, it's so dark. It's part of a judgment on the god Ra of Egypt, that false god Ra, who was the sun god. God said, well, how about if I just make it dark? But not just any darkness, a darkness you will feel. That's what being cast out of the presence of God is, cast out of the presence of light, cast from the presence of joy. Think about what would that be like? Only sorrow all the time, endless sorrow that never stops, cast completely from the presence of joy, cast from the presence of hope. Think about that, only despair. An endless tunnel of despair and never a light at the end of it. Cast from the presence of nourishment. Just the experience of hunger and thirst all day, every day, unabated forever. Cast from the presence of health. Imagine having the symptoms of the COVID virus every day for eternity. The worst flu imaginable every day for eternity. Like, you, you've probably had symptoms before in the past where you're laying there going, Lord, just take me. You're like, okay, death would be better than this. Well, imagine if there's no taking you from it. That will be what you feel forever. Cast from the presence of pleasure. No pleasure, only pain. One minute of pain after another minute of pain for eternity. Cast from the presence of beauty. No glory to look at, no beauty to look at, only ugliness, only vileness. Cast from the presence of rest, only agitation, only exhaustion. You know, what's the hope you have at the end of the day when you're exhausted and completely spent? I get to sleep. 
Well, what if there's no sleep, no rest, no tuning it out, agitation, exhaustion forever? Imagine the sound of shrieking and screaming and crying every hour of every day, weeping and gnashing of teeth without end. And that just begins to give a little sense of what it means to be cast from his presence. For he is the source of light, the source of joy, the source of hope, the source of nourishment, the source of health, the source of pleasure, the source of beauty, the source of rest. In him, these and a thousand other gifts are found, and apart from him, they're all lost. And to those who live and die outside his presence, they are forever lost. That's why the words cast from his presence should just go off like an atom bomb in our hearts. We should read that and go, oh no, the worst conceivable fate. But it's also why the message of reconciliation to God and eternity with God that is in the gospel is the most glorious news ever. So there's the immense cost of rebellion, but then there's the immense prize of the gospel. And so we simply can't miss what the Lord wants us to comprehend, that the immense prize of the gospel is God. When God promised to deliver his enslaved people from Egypt, remember what he said? He said, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, Exodus 6-7. And they were meant to go, whoa, Yahweh is going to take us as his people. He gets to be our God. It's this personal. He's He's not just getting us out of Egypt. He's getting us to himself. He's not just taking us into a wilderness. He's taking us to a place where he is. He's not just getting us into a promised land, but a promised land that, that he's caused his name to dwell there, where he will abide with us and be with us. When he brought them into the promised land, he went before them. He came with them. We're going to see that our sin separates us from God, and Jesus died for sins in order to reconcile us to God. Listen to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See what he's doing? He died. He was rose. When we turn from sin and put our faith in him, it's not just sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card. We are brought to God. We are reconciled to God. The Father becomes our Father. Jesus becomes our husband and redeemer, united to him, filled with his spirit. Now the presence of God in us. The psalmist is going to cry out to God in Psalm 43.3, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. What a statement. Send out your light and your truth that they can lead me to you. And interesting, what's, what is the answer to that prayer? Christ. That interesting, yeah, send out your light and your truth. And God's like, I will send you my light and my truth. The light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. She said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So the psalmist says, send it out. Jesus comes. Leads us to God. Brings us to his holy hill and his dwelling. Brings us to the altar of God. To God our exceeding joy. It's the whole point of the gospel. The truth of God's word. The ministry of Christ is to lead us to God. To reconcile us to God. Who is our exceeding joy. David prayed in Psalm 24, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. By this time in his life, David's like, there's just one thing I ask for. Of all the things I ask for, they're all rooted in this one thing I want, to be with God, to listen to him talk to behold his glory, to have communion with him. David's like, it's the only thing I pray for. And all the other little things I pray for are just subpoints over that main big desire I have, desire for God. So you just think a minute about the wonder of the Grand Canyon. Anybody here ever been to the Grand Canyon? A lot of people have been to the Grand Canyon. So you've seen it. I mean, you can stick an elephant in the middle of that thing, and it would look like a gnat. It's a little ant crawling across the bottom. Almost 300 miles in length, 20 miles wide, in some places 6,000 feet deep, which means if we were to fall off that cliff, it would take 20 seconds before we hit the bottom. That's how deep it is. And just the beauty of it, the wonder of it, the glory of it. Well, consider the one who designed it in his mind and made it with his words. What must he be like? Think about the Pacific Ocean. You stick a big old cargo ship out there and it just looks like dust floating in a swimming pool. So vast, 700 million cubic kilometers of water. 62 million square miles. Right? I mean, blue whales look like goldfish out there. I mean, killer whales are like tadpoles, and even that's giving them credit. And God can hold it in his hands. Like the whole Pacific Ocean, just stick it there. And that's only because he would condescend to do it. You think, what must he be like? How powerful must he be? Consider the stars, just their size, their brightness. Some of them 1,500 times bigger than our sun. Some of them a billion kilometers wide. Giving off light that can be seen trillions of miles away. Or more. Well, what must the one who spoke them into existence be like? You know, remember in Genesis 1 where it's giving the creation account? And it just says, and he made the stars also. It's great. It's like, oh yeah, he made some stars. I mean, we still haven't gotten to the end of how many there are. And just the sheer brightness of them, size of them, how big must God be? It's incomprehensible. I mean, if you had opportunity to shoot hoops with your favorite basketball star, play golf with your favorite professional golfer, throw the football around with your favorite NFL quarterback, would you not think, this is amazing? This is so great that I get to do this. Or sit front row of your favorite Broadway show. Have a private seat right in front of the stage of your favorite concert. 
your favorite musical artist. I mean, how many of us would just jump at the opportunity? Well, what about a front row seat to the God who created them all? Who gave them every ability they have? I mean, if you had an opportunity to spend an afternoon with Steven Spielberg, would you, I mean, I don't know if you're into Spielberg stuff, but would you relish that? Would you go, okay, this is pretty cool. Have an afternoon with Spielberg. And all he did is direct and produce a few movies. Like, what about the one who directs human history? Who produces it? Just that scale. Who gives Spielberg every talent he has. Who gives him the ability to even think up the ideas that he thinks. The God who created every movie star, every professional athlete, every king and queen, every mathematical or scientific genius. All their abilities added up together still amount to nothing next to him. And how much time will we spend, like, observing and the glory of these creatures, taking in the wonder of these creatures, being amazed at these creatures, like sharing videos and likes. And behind all that, there's a God who made them, who created them, who knit them together in their mother's womb. Consider the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, who knows exactly how many hairs are on your head, which means he knows you better than you know you. He knows your thoughts before you know your thoughts. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. He's that intimate in his knowledge of you. Sees your every deed. Who sent his son to shed his blood to pay for your every sin. Whose grace is beyond comprehension. Whose grace puts to shame every poem of love. Every movie, every romance novel ever written. Nothing compared to the redeeming love of Christ. So all these things that are in the world, we can go on all day with more. They're just meant to give a small view, a small taste of the glory of the God that is behind it all. Creation declares the glory of God. The earth, the skies, all his handiwork. It all points to the one behind it, the prize behind it all, the one whose presence it all points to, the one whose presence we don't want to lose, the one whose presence is what the Bible calls fullness of joy, to be in his presence. And that was the joy into which Israel, freshly redeemed from Egypt, as we just said, they were invited to enter into that. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. You get a front row seat to me. You get to dwell with me, enjoy me, delight in me, To which they replied, where's the meat? Cucumbers? Aren't there leeks? Oh my goodness, this is the wilderness. We had it so great in Egypt, didn't we? And all that food sitting around pots of fish. How quickly they forget. Oh, and slavery. Oh, and the absence of God. (laughs) And all that idolatry. So God keeps trying to help them understand, I am your bread of life. Well, great, but what's to drink? Well, I'm your living water. Okay, fine, but come on, where's the fun? We need a golden calf. We need some meat and some music, some Moabite women. We got to get some fun in here. And all that idolatry and all that immorality and all that rebellion... Even the Adam and Eve, we don't think about it, that 
There was the sin of eating the, from the tree that God said, don't eat of this tree. But what did he say right before it? Of all the trees of the garden, you can eat freely. Isn't that something? And I'm sure they weren't lousy trees. Of all these other trees. So in other words, their sin wasn't just the sin of taking what God said don't take, but also a refusal to be satisfied in God. A refusal to be satisfied in the gifts that God did give. And that's just how sin works. We miss the giver, and therefore we misuse the gift. That's why the Lord said to them, they shall not enter my rest, Hebrews 3.11. They lost the real prize. They were meant to hear that, and that was meant to crater them. Yeah, they won't enter my rest. Yeah, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, one servant was not faithful to his master. You remember what Jesus says? Cast the worthless servant out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Well, because he's cast from the king, from the kingdom. Two servants were faithful to the king. Do you recall what the reward was? Enter into the joy of your master. There's the prize. Enter into the joy of your master. So we need to learn to see and value the prize. And I've come to believe this is the most important, most difficult mission for every one of us. To see and value God. To comprehend the beauty of God. To seek Him above everything. To be satisfied in Him above everything. To enjoy Him fully in this life. And really the task is, okay, how do we do that? I think one way is learn to see the giver behind every gift. Learn to see Him. Behind singleness and marriage is a God who gives singleness and gives marriage. There's a giver there. Behind childlessness and children, behind food and hunger, behind water and thirst, behind work and rest, behind health and weakness, is a God from whom it all comes, a God who governs all those things. So every time you drink water, you're meant to see, okay, he is my living water. Every time you eat bread, it's meant to, you know, he is my bread of life. Every time you put on clothing, yeah, he is my shelter. He is my covering. He is my righteousness. Every time you lay down underneath your ceiling, yeah, he is my refuge. Every single thing in your life can point to him. Every single thing he brings can point to the giver. Learn to perceive the beauty behind every beauty. Well, that's beautiful art, colors, symmetry, waterfalls, every splendor of the created world. There is a God behind it who's more beautiful. You go look at a waterfall and go, wow. What a waterfall. What a God who made that. When you see the mountains, when you see the stars, when you see all beauty, when you go admire art. So it's interesting. You can, you know, Beethoven explicitly composed in his mind for the glory of God. And Wagner composed explicitly for the glory of man. That was his objective. And when you listen, you can tell as a Christian. <laughs> You can actually listen, and it does something different in the soul. So even to see, okay, that's how music sounds to people who don't like God. Oh, this is what music is like to those who 
worship in everything. Learn to feel the pleasure behind every pleasure, behind endorphins and coffee and tea and pleasant tastes and sexual pleasures in marriage and putting your head on the pillow at the end of a long day and soaking in a bathtub and roller coasters and cool breezes and warm sunshine. Behind all that pleasure, there's a God who gives pleasure. A God who at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Learn to trust the mercy behind every ounce of suffering. Behind fatigue, behind sickness, behind barrenness, behind loneliness, behind pain, behind loss, is a God of all mercies. A God who's with you there in that place, who's near to the brokenhearted. Learn to appreciate the grace behind every sin we've committed. Behind our coveting, behind our cravings, behind our arrogance, our impatience, our immorality, our quarreling, our selfishness is a God of all grace who forgives every last ounce of it. Every sin we've ever committed, are committing, will commit. Grace covers it. Learn to know the power behind every weakness, behind our frail bodies, our tiredness, our confusion, our inability to overcome trouble, our limitations, is a God of infinite power who strengthens us, who enables us, who gives us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. Learn to experience the hope beyond loss, especially death. That as Christians, the Word of God helps us see beyond the veil, helps us see that death is a doorway. Behind loss, there's gain. Behind death, there's life. There's a God who's waiting to receive. Well, those are just a few examples Zedekiah refused to learn it. And his story, according to 1 Corinthians 10 11, was written down for our instruction. So we would read it and go, okay, we want to walk a different road. I want to value what he didn't value. I want to see what he didn't see. I want to appreciate what he didn't appreciate. And praise God, that's precisely what Jesus does. Moses, on the other hand, learned it, which is why I think. He begs God in Exodus 33, 18, please show me your glory. One of the greatest prayers in the whole Bible. Please show me your glory. Zedekiah never asks that. Moses, toward the end of his life, that's what he's valuing. That's what he wants. Remember when God says, hey, my angel will lead you into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. And what Moses says, he's like, well, then I ain't leaving. I'll just stay right here on this mountain. He says, because what is the measure of your grace, Lord, but that you go with us? Moses understood it. Promised land without God ain't a promised land. And I don't want it. And so we need to learn to ask good questions. Number one, is God your promised land? Or is it stuff? Moses came to realize that the promised land was worthless without God. Exodus thirty three fifteen, and he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Like, this is what makes us distinctive as God's people. This is what makes us Christian, is Christ in us, being found in him, 
being united to him, being filled with his spirit, being reconciled to the Father. It's interesting that Moses said, that's the measure of your grace. Just ask her, is that how we measure grace? Is that how we measure the love of God? Does God love you? Yeah, how do we know? He's with me. Not, he makes all the stuff go the way I want it to in life. Like, that's not the measure of his grace. It's not he keeps away pain and just delivers pleasure. Now, the real mark of his grace is he is with us. He is for us. He is in us. He is redeeming us. He is sanctifying us. Because if you know the story of Exodus, you know that's a remarkable change in Moses. Because if you recall, when God first met him at the burning bush, Moses, what was his prayer? Please get me out of this. Send someone else. I'll just go back over here to looking at sheep. Get somebody to do that little thing you want them to do. By the end, he's like, oh, okay, it wasn't just about like people liking me. It wasn't about my life working out. It was, I get God. John Piper, in the book God is the Gospel, writes, The critical question for our generation, and for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Could you be satisfied? Is God the real prize of heaven for you? Yeah, there'll be all kinds of other great stuff. All God's people, but is the center point, is the center of gravity for your hope in heaven, Christ will be there. That I will see his face. Apostle Paul had lost everything and he counted it rubbish. He says, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And so we need to find whatever feeds our capacity to know the surpassing riches of knowing Christ. Whatever helps you learn surpassing riches of Christ, whatever feeds your understanding of the surpassing riches of knowing Christ, like just milk that. Live on that. Feed that. Probably going to involve the Word of God, reading it every day. Probably going to involve meditating on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Probably going to involve gathering in the fellowship of the saints. Expending energy thinking about Christ. Talking to Christ. Hearing from Christ through his word. Not being distracted by the things of the world. Not falling in love with the things of the world. Not being allured by the shiny glimmer of the things of the world. But rather seeing the gifts of the world as pointing to giver. Is your grief over sin and your gratitude over salvation primarily about God? That's a second question worth asking. Is your grief over sin, your gratitude over salvation primarily about God? Because before Christ intervened, we were alienated from God. And so even if you're here this morning and you've never thrown yourself upon the mercy of God and Jesus Christ, then you are alienated from God. And I pray that you would feel that, feel the weight of it, 
and then hear the glory of the gospel messages. You can repent, turn from your sin, grieve that sin, look to Christ, trust in him. Okay, his death can count for your death. His resurrection can count as your resurrection. Like his blood can pay for your sin. You can be forgiven and brought to God, reconciled to God. And he could be the exceeding joy of your life. And for us who are counted among God's children, when our present day invites tension and trouble and conflict into relationship with our Heavenly Father, when we walk in sin, we need to see that. That's the sadness of sin, is it grieves the Spirit. It's the sadness of sin as it brings tension and conflict into our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We're secure. We're never cast away. We're never cast out. But our communion with Him can be interrupted. Though our union with Him can't be lost, our communion can be soured. And so we want to grieve that. You know, think about relationships in your life where there's been conflict, tension, fighting, and how much of that is wrought by coming and repenting and seeking forgiveness. Or forgiving someone who's repented and wrong, who had wronged you. Well, those are just little tastes of what we need with the Lord, just to keep reconciling to Him as those who are reconciled to Him. So that's the consequence of sin. I pray that is becoming more and more the consequence that most grieves us. Is what it does here, not just what it does here. The promise of the gospel is reconciliation to God. It is peace with God, union with God, eternity in the presence of God. And so does that make you thankful for salvation? Like, this is what I get. This is who I get. This is who I get to enjoy. This is who I get to celebrate. This is who we don't just sing about, we sing to him. And we're about to gather as a church, and the Lord is present with us. I mean, we are gathered now, but even when we gather in corporate worship in a little while, we're going to sing songs, and he is present. We, we sing to him. We're going to hear the word preached, and it's his word speaking to us. Others are going to lead us in prayer, and we're actually talking to God who hears. We're relating to him. And so we're longing for that day when, right, faith will give way to sight. We'll see him. We won't just hear him through this written word. We'll hear spoken words. The presence of God lost by Adam and Eve because of sin has all been regained for us in Christ. That's what he's done. We will enjoy a new garden with new trees, singing a new song in new glorified bodies in the presence of God who made all things new, who will make all things new, and will never be cast out. That's the prize. We've got a few minutes left for questions or comments or any kind of thoughts.
Yeah. Yeah. So just the comment that the number one, whether the king's reigned for three months or 11 years, and it went three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years, what summarized was they did wickedly. But then also the three of these are sons of Josiah. One is a grandson and, and all of them wicked. I think in one way we go, okay, is this a comment about his parenting or leadership in the home? Maybe, but it's mostly a comment about the Lord had decreed that they would go into exile. And so in some ways, it's also a testimony to who you can be faithful in parenting, faithful in leading, faithful in following the Lord. You can model all of that for your children. And they walk a whole different way. And when the Lord had decreed in the days of Manasseh, I'm going to put him out of my sight. Now, Josiah has a different kind of heart. He's going to reform away. And so you see that little light, that glimmer. But then his sons are going to come along. Similar, right, with Hezekiah. Hezekiah's son was Manasseh. And after Manasseh, then you get Josiah, a grandson of Manasseh. And so it's like a roller coaster. But at the end of the day, it's going to be what does God decree? What did he sovereignly purpose for these kings and for this nation? Um, And so it is a tragedy, but it's also we're meant to see, but it's we were never meant to hope in any of them. We're always meant to see they're all flawed copies, that there's a whole other king that had to come to reconcile his people, to reconcile us back to God, and that, that they were, no matter how many more generations came, it wasn't going to get better. That Jesus, another king of Judah, had to come. The son of God. But yeah, thank you. Anything else before we close? When you mean struggling with the finality, you mean just that judgment is real? That it's... Yeah. Yeah, so certainly the last 15 to 16 chapters of Isaiah, uh, the whole book of Revelation, um, just any time it talks about, okay, their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. Even Jesus is going to quote those. I'm trying to think of where in Matthew he quotes some of that. But a number of Jesus's um, little sermons and comments toward the end of his life, at, at the end of Matthew, at the end of Luke, are heavenly, heavily leaning toward end times and what's coming. I think the book of Daniel is another one where you can just see it speaks so vividly and soberly to what the end is going to involve and what's going to be in store. Um, yeah, just the idea that, okay, he comes in from whom heaven and earth flee away. And people start crying, mountains fall on us. It's one thing you're guaranteed. If you're not in Christ, that's what you will pray for. You'll want the biggest mountains on the planet to hide you. And what's interesting is, and it's from the wrath of a lamb. Who would have thought a lamb could be that scary? But that resurrected lamb, you know, and everything you see described, you know, and, and um, Ryan preached on some of this last week in Revelation of just, you know, when Jesus shows up, what he looks like, when he speaks, what it sounds like. And so those are all the kinds of passages that can begin to put in some kind of understandable form how serious it is. But then even then, as we see with Zedekiah, like if the Spirit of God doesn't open the heart, it, it, it'll, it'll scoff at it. 
you take this message into the world, how many of us see it's, it's mocked or laughed at? Different people have different reactions. If you've ever been in that moment where you've shared the gospel and shared about these things and the person laughs, it's one of the worst feelings to me imaginable. And most tragic is, is when comedy is the experience of the wrath of God. When, and so, yeah, those would all be possible places. But Let me pray for us. Well, Father, we do pray that you would help us see just the ultimate prize of our salvation is you. We pray that you would help us see the immense cost of rebellion and sin, the immense gift that we receive in Christ. But you'd also help us to be thankful and grateful for being in your presence and being guaranteed your presence forever. And pray that you'd make us bold and faithful in proclaiming this gospel in the world around us, no matter how it's received. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you.